Hello, and welcome to Enlightened Empaths, your community for the spiritually awakened. Today, we're going to be talking about how to set boundaries with confidence and courage. And joining us to discuss this is Terry Cole, who's just written a book called Boundary Boss, which helps readers to break free of people-pleasing and over-delivering habits that can sabotage your joy. Terry Cole is a licensed psychotherapist and global relationship and empowerment expert. For over two decades, Terry has worked with a diverse group of clients that includes everyone from stay-at-home moms to celebrities and Fortune 500 CEOs. Her work inspires over 250,000 people weekly through her blog, social media platform, signature courses, and of course, her popular podcast, The Terry Cole Show. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Enlightened Empaths, Terry. We're so happy to have you here. Why, thanks for having me. I heard you speak on Marie Forleo's podcast, and I thought, oh my God, we have to have this woman come on (laughs) because she is just a wealth of information, and it's absolutely perfect for for our listeners. Uh Excellent. You say in in your book that we have a unique downloaded boundary blueprint. What does that exactly mean? It's basically a paradigm in your unconscious mind of the way that you relate to boundaries and why. So it is made up of what you learned in your childhood experience, the adults in your life, the country, the culture, all of the ways that you were influenced all come together and create your unique downloaded boundary blueprint. And for many of us, you know, many of us were raised to be good girls, you know, to be nice, to, you know, turn that frown around and where's my happy girl and all of those types of messaging that we really got that our jobs, you know, they they were to make sure that other people were comfortable, you know? So that's what your blueprint is made up of. Okay. That is one of my pet peeves, the turn the frown upside down, because I walk around with RBF (laughs) <laughs> and I don't mean to, but I'm just, I'm, a, I'm always seriously into thought when I'm walking <laughs> through hallways or the streets and it's never a woman. It's always a man. And I don't mean to be man bashing because, you know, I love men and women equally, but someone inevitably will say, turn that round upside down, girl, or where'd your smile go? And, oh, it drives me crazy. I never thought of that as part of my boundary blueprint though. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, it's it's literally saying, I don't care how you feel. I don't care why. Let's say you were frowning because you were sad or upset. The person telling you to turn that thing around, literally saying, I you I want you to please me. It would please me if you smiled. I don't care if you're bawling your eyes out inside. You know, like we learn right. to prioritize the feeling states, the desires, the wishes of others above our own. That's so true. Am I alone? Am I the only one that apologizes when I cry? I do that all the time. If I start to cry, I'll go, oh, I'm so sorry. And I'll reach for a tissue and I'll try to, you know, just push past it. You're you not alone. <laughs> okay. I, I do not do that anymore. But but certainly the, I mean, think about what is underneath that action, right? It's basically, I don't want to burden you with how I'm actually feeling. Right. Right. And, and I think we are covertly and overtly taught that. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, it is it is so reinforced, which is why becoming a boundary boss, mastering the art of boundaries is something that most, listen, <laughs> you shouldn't know this 
P.S. Nobody taught you this. And in fact, we were given lots of corrupted data about boundaries, about what it means if you have boundaries. We're so afraid that people will perceive us as not nice, as harsh, as dramatic, as bitchy, as all the things, you know? And that really gives boundaries a bad rap when the reality is, think about it, is saying yes when you'd really want to say no, is that actually being nice? It's being dishonest. And it's giving, it's us giving corrupted information to the people in our life about who we are. And then we end up feeling alone, unseen, unknown. And we're literally doing it to ourselves unwittingly, of course. Exactly. So what I love, love, love in your book is that it's filled with incredibly useful tips and techniques that are interspersed with these stories of real life people who have dealt with what a lot of us deal with on a regular basis. But one line in there, and I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit, it was like a head thunk for me because you put boundaries to protect your sacred inner space or your sacred space within. And that just made so much damn sense to me because as you've mentioned, the boundaries get set when we're little people or family of origin or school or whatever, you know, we want to connect that with, but learning that it's sacred and it's okay. So, and, and I think that that just that one line, I love, love the book, but that line really was an aha moment for me, but here's my question. And this isn't, this is kind of wing that off the, the cuff is there's something in the book as well about you, you might be perceived as bitchy or controlling or this and that. And, when I was reading that, I thought of an old friend of mine who had no problem whatsoever with setting boundaries. And I don't mean this disrespectfully, but she really was a bitch. So how, mm-hmm. do you, how do you differentiate between the two of finding your inner power and setting the boundaries and being strong without it becoming aggressive or adversarial? Well, here's the thing. If if your friend was aggressive about it, then the truth is she didn't have great boundaries. She had rigid boundaries, which mean, means they're too firm. So because when you have healthy boundaries, you can always set boundaries and make a simple request with ease, with grace, with kindness, and when appropriate, with love. There's no need to be aggressive unless you're protecting yourself from someone who's being aggressive towards you. So that is that exactly speaks to the um, confusion that we have about what it means to be boundaried. Because when you're masterful, I mean, there's a reason why the name of the book is Boundary Boss and not Boundary Bully, right? Because a boss is someone who is masterful at what they're doing. And so I'm going to quickly explain like what my idea of having healthy boundaries. What what must you know to have healthy boundaries? You must know your preferences, your desires, your limits, and your deal breakers. And then you must have the ability to communicate them or negotiate for them transparently with whomever you want to. That's a very simplified way of putting a very complicated issue. I... (laughs) That's quotable. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. In your practice, you've worked with really successful, high-powered people. And you've worked with ordinary people like Denise and me as well, the whole range. And yet, 
this is the book you chose to write. Is that because this is the one issue that comes up no matter what walk of life your clients come from? Yep. That's exactly why, because there is no one that I've ever met in 25 years of being a psychotherapist that especially women, because it's really highly competent women have been my main demographic for these years. And it didn't matter what the presenting problem was, what they walked in about, maybe family of origin stuff, maybe looking to get a divorce, maybe having an eating disorder or a drinking problem, whatever. I could connect the dots backwards to the lack of this skill set. So in my own evolution in therapy, I learned that I was a boundary disaster and I needed to work on this. But then when I became a psychotherapist in my early 30s, I was like, wow, this is a full-blown epidemic. Yeah, it really is. And I think for me personally, I'm really good at setting boundaries in some areas of my life. Mm -hmm. And other areas, there's a lot of work left to be done. Is that common where people are excellent at boundary setting in certain categories of their life? Yeah, it, it is actually very common because the women in my practice were super competent. So many of them were highly successful in business or in entertainment or wherever. And yet there was still an Achilles heal that they would have in their, a lot of them, it was their romantic relationships or their family of origin, where they felt like they had the disease to please in those areas where they were more of a pushover. I created um, a quiz that's a free quiz. It's You just go to boundaryquiz.com. And that actually is 13 questions, super easy, where anyone listening can go and it'll help you with your baseline. Like I have these archetypes and you may come up as the, let's say the chameleon or the peacekeeper, especially this crew of highly sensitive folks and empaths, because I, I am that as well. And a lot of my audience are highly sensitive folks and empaths, which also means that we suffer from codependency because those things, our, our sixth sense of feeling what other people are feeling, leans us towards codependency with all of that it means we have disordered boundaries. So it's really important if you're an empath or a highly sensitive person to master this art because you've got to hold on to your energy, right? Because it's so easy for other people's energy to dictate our own. And I think for empaths in the moment, it's just easier to break that boundary than to hold that energy to maintain the boundary. Yeah, but... Uh, agreed, but it's a short-term fix. And so when you really start going into the basement of your mind, right, that's where your downloaded blueprint is, and start understanding why are you relating this way? There are reasons. All of us had reasons in childhood that, I mean, listen, you know, some people talk about nature and nurture when it comes to being an empath. I happen to be a psychotherapist. So I definitely think that nurture has a lot to do with how we have these this um, intuitive sense and this, it's way past <laughs> a lot of sympathy, right? Obviously, it is, we're literally feeling the feelings of other people. And, you know, that is something that for many of us, depending on your childhood experiences, this was very adaptive in whatever your circumstance was. 
and probably created more safety for you or, you know, we we don't want to be rejected as kids and we don't want to be rejected as adults. So we learn these things in childhood and they're adaptive in childhood and then become maladaptive in adulthood. So anyway, long way around the barn, Samantha, to go back to your, what you were saying, which is that the short term of just sort of allowing the boundary and doing the thing that is most natural for you to do, that feels like the way to go. But when you start really deeply understanding the cost to your life, to your internal experience, to your peace, to your physical well-being of having these disordered boundaries, it really is worth the effort to become fluent in boundaries so that if you are communing with someone emotionally, you're doing it by choice, not by default. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think it is a, it is a very short time, short-term gain where you don't get a lot out of it in the long term. And yet, those initial stages of setting that boundary are so fraught and difficult, especially I think for the empath. I know for me, I have a very, very narcissistic mother and I have been trying to set boundaries with her off and on for years. And in the recent years, I've been incredibly firm with my boundaries and my sisters have, they haven't called me a bitch, (laughs) (laughs) But it's there. It's like the elephant in the room. And one day, a couple of months ago, I said, if setting a boundary with mom makes me a bitch, then this is what a bitch looks like. I'm a bitch. Mm -hmm. And they didn't know what to say. And I have maintained that boundary. And yet the emotion that goes along with maintaining that boundary, at least for me, is shame. I feel very bad that I'm holding that boundary. And so I have to constantly remind myself that Breaking that boundary is way more painful than this temporary feeling of shame. And I also say, why don't we get curious about the shame? Because the reality is, if you were your own child, your advice to your kid would be, you have every right to protect yourself. And in fact, my love, right? You would be talking to your child. It is your your job to protect yourself. You don't have to throw yourself under the bus for anyone. And it actually doesn't help anyone, especially with a narcissist, because no matter what you do, no matter how much you give, no matter how much you do, abandon yourself in the service of the narcissist's ego, it will literally never be enough. It will never satisfy. When No matter what you give, they'll want more. No matter what you do, it won't be correct. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I call them cracked vases. You can put as much water and beautiful flowers in there as you want. It's always going to leak out and need more. Yep. And it's not your job to continue to pour water into a cracked vase. It really isn't. And you are not required as a daughter, as a friend, as a partner, as a husband, wife. You're not required to do that for anyone because it's unhealthy. And then we're giving from a place of fear from a place of obligation, from a place of subjugation, like you know that if you don't uphold that boundary, exactly how you're going to feel and what's going to happen because you've been down that road a billion times, right? Yeah. And I think it erodes away at your soul when you do that to yourself. I will agree. And it's really annihilates Mm self-esteem. 
It's so bad for self-esteem. And yet I understand because we have all of this mother worshiping that happens in our society. And so people, if they've never had this experience with a narcissistic parent or sibling or partner, they literally have no idea. Like, no, they can't imagine. They say the dumbest things. You only have one mother. And when you're the daughter of a narcissist, you're like, thank God. But um, <laughs> like, they don't get it, you know? And so we can't expect them to get it. And yet there comes a point in life, Samantha, and obviously you've hit that point, where we just go, hey, this is my one and only life. How do I want to feel? Very, very powerful and so important. An excellent point, because I think as empaths, as sensitives, there's a level of bravery and courage that's needed to stand up to people who may have been the with you at the origins of that basement work that we all have to do, and to say, I can't be that person you've always known me to be anymore, when you right. start to set those boundaries. And it, it can be very overwhelming. And for years, people would say, well, why aren't you angry at your ex-husband? And I said, because I'm the one that changed. He didn't. <laughs> He's still the same person. But what right. changed was I set the boundaries. Right. But, you know, and what, you're, what you said, Denise, is so true. And what Samantha was saying before about the sisters, noticing, right? So we have all of these silent agreements within our family of origin. And it's like Samantha upended the silent agreement that we would all pander to mom. And that's what they're reacting to. And what's so interesting is that you can keep the boundary and say, hey, here's the thing. You cannot like it. And it's still my choice. And what we realize when we start to draw boundaries is that being a little bit uncomfortable or a lot uncomfortable in the service of our own mental and physical well-being is well worth it and that you're not that fragile and the people in your life besides narcissists are not that fragile narcissists they're pretty fragile but everyone else is going to be just fine even if they don't like it so we you know people always say to me how can i i want to establish boundaries and have no conflict at all I'm like, well, good luck, because <laughs> I, I don't know. That, that's like, do you have the magic boundary bullet? And the answer is, I don't. But how about we reframe, in a way, the way that we experience being uncomfortable or conflict and realizing it's okay to say, hey, I see that you're upset, and this is still my choice. So I appreciate you respecting it, or I expect you to respect it, depending on who you're talking to, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. That takes a lot of inner strength in my experience because like in my story, breaking that boundary, I don't really mind so much that it's affecting my mom because I've done a lot of good work on that, but it's affecting my sisters because then they have to pitch in more. And so I've said like, you know, I'll help with the outer stuff. I'll get the paperwork done and I'll pay the bills. I'll do grocery shopping, but I'm not going to interact which means there's more work on them driving her to the doctor and whatnot. So what do you recommend for people who break a boundary with an individual, but it ricochets on other people? But that's all codependency, Samantha, right? Like right. you say your sisters have to, I say they don't. I say they choose to. And so they could take, they could go the route you're going and not 
You could pool your money and hire someone. You could get a helper to take her. Like, if you, all of you were abducted by aliens, what would happen to your mother? That's what I keep saying. There's food delivery services. There's Uber. Yeah, I know. So the bottom line is you are an individual and made a choice. Your sisters are making their own choice. So there's not more for them to do because of what you're, they're choosing to do more because you have chosen to draw a boundary. And that's their side of the street. And it's so important, especially as empaths, that we get really clear about what is on my side of the street and what is on someone else's side of the street. And it's confusing even if you're not an empath. And it's even more confusing when you are. So if you start looking for, you know, people who are listening where they're like, where, where do I need boundaries? You know, how do I know where I need boundaries? I would say the first step is to take a resentment inventory, right? Really think about who are the people in your life and what is, what do you feel resentment about? Where do you feel unheard? Where do you feel overworked or where are you overgiving? That is a helpful thing to know about yourself, right? Be mindful. Where are you rocking the auto yes? Where it doesn't matter what people ask you, you are instantly agreeing to things before you even give yourself a chance, you know? And what about auto-accommodating? I mean, have you guys experienced this at all? Where every situation that you're in, you're literally scanning the room. You're seeing, oh, look, there's a problem there. I think Someone needs help. Maybe I'll maybe I'll move over so these two can sit together. Maybe I should tell the lady that I'll sit over here if they need the sink. Do you know what I mean? Yes, and it's frustrating because I sometimes I feel like I'm the only one who notices that the person sitting alone, the other individual looking at their feet or wringing their hands, and I'm like, why doesn't anyone else see this? And then I feel obligated to go help that person. Right, but here's the thing: auto accommodating is a compulsion that stems from being an empath. If you see someone and you go, oh, I noticed their pain. I have the bandwidth today. Maybe I'll go talk to them. Because the bottom line is that person's pain is their side of the street. Like they didn't ask you, they didn't invite you to come and help them. But we feel like instead of just our side of the street, we have to keep clean. We feel like we have to clean the whole neighborhood. You know what I mean? Yeah, true. You have such a great way with words and phrasing things. (laughs) So you talk about self-abandoning codependence and Mm -hmm. high-functioning codependence. Is there a difference? And if so, can you explain that? Yes. I mean, codependence, self-abandoning, whether you're high-functioning or not, the the sheer nature of what codependency is means we're self-abandoning in some way. So I'll tell you my definition of codependency and of high-functioning codependency. I came up with this new name, basically, because my clientele were highly competent women who didn't identify at all with the codependent label. They were like, what are you nuts? If I I brought it up, they'd be like, hello, everyone depends on me. I'm the person who everyone comes to with their problems. I'm the person who's making the money. What do you mean? I'm not dependent on squat. I'm like, right. And the way you're interacting is still codependent. So 
What it means is you are overly invested in the feeling states, the decisions, the outcomes, and the circumstances of the people in your life to the detriment of your own internal peace or your financial well-being or your physical well-being. Because listen, as mothers and sisters and lovers, of course we're invested in the happiness of the people we care about, obviously. So it really has to be sort of to the detriment where like when something is happening to someone you care about, something bad, that you feel the urgency like it's happening to you. So that is codependency. The high functioning piece of that is that the women in my practice made it look easy. They were running businesses and families and the PTO and like doing all the things but they were doing it at the expense of themselves, doing it until they got sick with autoimmune disorders, with other things. They were using substances to numb. I call it like shadow addictions because, you know, it isn't like they were raging alcoholics, but they were drinking, you know, three big glasses of wine a night to numb what they didn't want to feel. And so it's really important if you identify as any of this, where you are the fixer, like people come to you, someone has a problem, you're always giving unsolicited advice, right? If someone comes and says, oh, you know, I'm thinking about doing this thing. And you're like, oh, I know someone, I'll I'll connect you guys by email. Or do you understand what I'm saying? I know you do. (laughs) I know you do. (laughs) Yep. And why is that not healthy for us? And why do I talk about it in the book? Because that behavior, feeling like someone else's problem is yours to fix, is having disordered emotional boundaries. Because A, it makes an assumption that you know what other people should do. And, you know, trust me, I'm talking from experience because I was the worst in my 20s. (laughs) That was a long time ago, but still. So no judgment, just saying. It was so anxiety-provoking. For me, someone else being in pain because I was an empath, that I did feel an urgency to help them solve whatever I thought their problem was. But that comes with the assumption, like a really big assumption, that I know what anyone else should be doing in their life. And it really, this all came to a head um, when I was in therapy with my therapist and one of my sisters was in a really dangerous situation with some abusive guy living in a house without running water in the middle of the woods, like it was a whole thing. And I was crying to my therapist and being like, I've sent her money. I don't know what to do. I don't know, you know, I don't know what to do next. I'm at my wit's end. And she was like, let me ask you something. What makes you think that you know what Jenna needs to learn in this life? And I was like, well, I mean, come on. I think we can all agree. She doesn't need to learn it with this idiot in the woods without running water. And she said, I really can't agree. You know, Tara, because I'm not God. I don't know. But do you know what's really happening here? And I was like, obviously not. So please inform me. And she said, you've worked for two decades to create internal peace and a pretty harmonious life. And your sister's life being a burning dumpster fire is really messing with your peace. Her pain is disrupting you, your life, 
it's creating pain for you. What you really want is to fix her, quote unquote, so that your pain can end. And I was like, holy crap. Yep, that's pretty much exactly what's happening. And it made me understand how disordered my emotional boundaries were and how codependent I was being with that sibling. And so she helped me learn that I could step back, that I could say, I love you and I cannot talk to you about this abusive person in your life. I can't. If and when you ever want to leave, for real, I'm still your person. I'm all in. And nine months later, she called me and said, I want to leave. And my husband and I helped her. And that was decades ago. And she's been sober ever since and went back to school. And, you know, there's a happy ending to that. But I really learned that my interference with what was going on, I thought it was out of love. But my therapist also said, you know, Terry, you're also like diluting the urgency that she's feeling to fix her own problem because you're putting a Band-Aid on these things by sending money or by letting her toxically dump on you. She needs that urgency to figure out her own stuff. Right. So through your act of love, you were actually prolonging her rock bottom moment. Yes. Yeah, that's important. Do you think that we all have the same motivation for codependency or do you think it's different? No, I I don't. I think that we're all very unique and that something happened in childhood for most of us. But you could have had a very normal, quote unquote, family situation, let's say, and still grew up to be a codependent because it's the way that we were socialized. Like you didn't even have to have a totally disordered, like, you know what I mean? It didn't even have to be a chaotic family system. And you could still grow up to be that because that was being a good girl. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. I think it is fostered culturally by the social groups we're around. I remember years ago, I was at a school breakfast meeting at this restaurant, and one of the moms got a text from her daughter, and it said, Mom, I forgot my lunch. And so she shared it with the group of moms, like, oh, she forgot her lunch. And we all stopped what we were doing. And we were like, oh, well, we could help you go to the grocery store and put something together and drop it off at the school. Or or we, you, know, you could just run by Chick-fil-A. I'm sure they'll allow it. And this, and blah, 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 blah. And she's like, no, I'm not doing any of that. How is she going to learn to remember her lunch if I come to her rescue? And we all stopped. And so many of the moms were looking at each other. And in that invisible language, you knew what they were thinking. Mm-hmm. That mom judgment judgment but i drove away from that meeting going holy cow that was such a teachable moment for me because i got to tell you i would have been the first one in line at that school dropping off the lunchbox but i know for a fact her daughter never forgot her lunch again yes and the thing is our job as parents is not to infantilize our kids our job as parents is to teach them the skills that they need because we're not always going to be here. And so there is, and it, listen, if the kid was four years old, that's different. Right, but if it was right. like a seventh grader, no, then yeah, <laughs> right, right. They, they could figure it out. So I think that even though a lot of times we feel like our actions are driven by love and caring, and they are, when if you really want to master the art of having healthy relationships, because that's what having healthy boundaries creates. We have to understand that sometimes 
our love is misguided and that really our actions are driven by fear and a fear of being uh, rejected or fear of being judged or seen as a bad mom or whatever, as opposed to being driven by love. Yeah. Again, hard to do. Yes. I was just going to say that having had more than, I have a beautiful codependent crown, if anyone would like to borrow it. It's quite dusty (laughs) now, but I wore it with pride for many years. And I think sometimes it's very insidious how we fall into those patterns as empaths with it. It's like smoke coming under the door. And then before we know it, we've repeated these patterns over and over and we keep bringing in the same situations or the same person with a different face. And until we can find that inner strength, as you mentioned in your book, to honor that sacred within, to set the boundaries, there's no way to break that cyclical pattern with relationships or people or situations. Yeah. And, and, you know, you're right, Denise. And what happens is we end up, you know, I always say this is a one-way ticket to bitter land. There's like no other stops on that train. That in the end, when we overgive, overfunction, prioritize everyone else above ourselves, you swear to yourself, you're not going to become a martyr, especially if you had a maternal impactor who was a martyr. And yet that's exactly what you will become because you become resentful. You're like a bean counter because we're giving from a disordered place. So no one can be thankful enough, even if they're really grateful, but they can't fill the space that we're needing filled because that space can only be filled by self-love, by self-worth, by self-esteem, not by doing for others and having them be appreciative. Exactly. And one of the the big things is that for myself, from personal experience, but also for many people that I speak with, they've become that person who is the responsible party. They're taking care of the children or the finances or the job, and it becomes the expectation, but also it feels like the normal. And to break free of that, I, I respect anyone who can can attack that head on because that's the, the path to, to being able to 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 go back to what I said earlier, to be able to embrace your inner bitch and say, you know what, I'm just not going to do it. It's not comfortable for me. Right. Yeah. But the thing is, you can do all of this one very small step at a time, which is the way that I teach it in the book. Yeah. It's like, we're not changing everything overnight. We're not grabbing a (laughs) megaphone, right? (laughs) And telling everyone, hey, we need to talk. There's a new boundary sheriff in town. Like, we're not doing that. It's literally being honest with yourself. If you do not want to go to the dinner party, it's instead of instantly saying yes, it's buying time. No more instant answers for anybody. Unless you're talking about a minor kid or your house is on fire and the fireman says, do you want to leave? The answer is yes, I do. You don't need to give an instant answer to anyone. This urgency that we feel to provide answers for others, no. Someone says, hey, do you want to go to a concert on Saturday? You could be like, I don't know, I got to check my... Whatever. I got to check with my person. I need to look at my schedule. Thanks for thinking of me. I'll let you know tomorrow. I love the technique you give for the three R's of recognize, release, and respond. And Mm -hmm. I read that over and over because it's, it's perfect. It puts you in the position with the recognize, release, and respond to really slow it all down. You know, and this is after we've identified, you know, why, why are we the way we are? Why is this hard? 
for us to tell the truth about how we feel or for to say no, right? But in that moment, you get to go, huh, I feel a constriction in my chest, in my throat. Someone just said something and I am having a reaction. So you recognize like, huh, something is going on here. Something is needed from me. Let me see what it is. And then we go, oh, okay. Is there anything I need to release? That's like old stuff. Does this person remind me of my punitive parent? And that's why I'm responding this way. Okay, let me release that. Then we can make the decision to respond appropriately. But so much of the time, you guys, we're just reacting like all day, every day, rather than mindfully responding. Love that. I do too. It's so true. And, you know, I do think that sometimes just recognizing is really the key. I know for years when I was working for other people, I had really, really mean female bosses, like kind of out of control. I mean, two of them got fired for being so mean and one was forced into early retirement. And my coworker friend and I were talking and I was like, why do I keep having this series of mean female bosses? And she said, well, it's your subconscious way of working out your issue with your mean mom. And I was like, oh, it just made so much sense. And that current boss, like I said, was forced into early retirement. And that wonderful awakened friend became my new boss. And I've (laughs) never had a female, a a rude boss, female or male or any otherwise since. So I do think there's a power in just recognizing the patterns that are showing up in your life to help you and to help shed some light on what's blocking your path. You can always tell when you're having a what you experienced was a transference. You were literally attracting like substitute mean moms into your life because something needed your attention. And you started giving that something your attention and you no longer needed to act out unconsciously, of course, that experience because you were you're now working it out in real life, in real time. So you can always ask yourself these three questions. If, you, if you're having a very um, amplified response to someone, or like you said, having a repeated experience, you can ask yourself, who does this person remind me of? Where have I felt like this before? And how is the way I'm interacting with them familiar to me? And you know, Samantha, if you had asked yourself that, if you had had that, that, that tool, you would have immediately been like, definitely my mother, without a doubt. And why that's valuable to reveal that information is because it tells us that that original injury, which is for you was the mother relationship, needs our attention. So if we can only, as human beings, we can only talk it out or act it out. That's it. So as soon as we start talking it out and bring it from the unconscious to the conscious mind, the compulsion to act it out is so much reduced that we almost don't need to do it at all anymore because we're actually going to deal with the original injury, even if that person's not around anymore, because they don't need to be alive for us to work it through. Oh, I think that's really important for a lot of people to hear. How can someone work out an issue like that with someone who has transitioned to the other side? What, what are some skills they can do? Talking it out in a journal or with a therapist? I mean, both, but you can write it out. If you've never written the person an unedited letter that tells the truth, honor your experience with that person and then write them a letter because they they know it. 
what, whatever you believe. Maybe other people believe that there is nothing after this, but I think there is. And I believe that people are in their highest form once they're transitioning. So they know what happened on earth. <laughs> they know what their experience was and their interactions. And burning that letter, have a, have a compassionate witness you know, you can read it to a compassionate witness telling them no, no input. I just need you to compassionately hold space and witness me and then do a ritual burn of that information and actively, consciously release it from your experience. And that is so incredibly powerful because so much of the time we don't even realize how valuable it is to just write down and honor what we experienced because we grew up learning that we should make what everyone else is doing okay because we're not supposed to make waves. So we're like, it's not a big deal. You know, my clients will come in and be like, I don't, it's 30 years ago. I should be over it by now. Like, listen, if you don't deal with it, you're never going to be over it. So now or 10 more years, it's up to you, right? Like we have to deal with these things. So that's one way that I think that people can really um, move through the pain of some kind of a rupture or a relationship with someone who's transitioned. That's a huge, huge, incredibly useful tool. I did that on the new moon last week as I sat mm. and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote about old loop tapes that have been stuck in my head, redundant messages, things that I know are holding me stuck and trapped. And my witness was my dog and I <laughs> talked to her about it before I burned them. But then when I got up the next day, there was a lightness. There was a feeling of, I don't have to let that hold me hostage anymore. I've, I've forgiven because forgiveness is that double-edged sword of until you truly get to that place where it's no longer holding you, you haven't forgiven or, or you're allowing it to still control you is my own personal aside. You know, it resonates with me. The, the one shift I would, I would make in that is I, I just forget the whole forgiveness thing for me. Just forget it because it's so corrupted. It's so corrupted that what, what, what we're really saying, Denise, is we are releasing yes. what no longer serves us. Yes. Because then you get into forgiveness and then people think it means you're condoning the people's crappy behavior. Like, forget it. It's not forgiveness. It's letting ourselves out of resentment prison. Forgiveness right. is for the forgiver, man. Like, Let's let ourselves be free from this thing that's been taking up space, not paying rent, this valuable real estate of our mind. That I is, that. we do that for ourselves, you know? Right. You don't have to keep cheering at the bullshit parade. You can move on. Exactly. Um, one of the things in your book, and I, I do want to circle back to that really quickly, is that in the back of your book, you there are these plethora of experiences and exercises that people can go deeper with their work. So I really want to emphasize to anyone listening that is having issues with boundaries or concerns, or you're saying, oh my God, this show is all about me. Please, please, please pick up Terry Cole's book, Boundary Boss, because it is something you can go back to over and over again. And also on your podcast, I cracked myself up because I listened to all your episodes, quite a few of your episodes, seven ways to know your boundaries suck. And I thought, oh, damn, I'm going to be a poster child for this one. And I <laughs> listened and it was, and I was, except for a couple, but, but at different times in my life, I could have clicked off all seven of them. So that's also a wonderful, wonderful resource for our listeners is uh, the Terry Cole show, 
podcast, which your your persona shines through beautifully with that, your personality. So thank you. Sure. And I actually have a gift for your audience because I know you're a bunch of empaths. So I've got, it's a little video and a beautiful downloadable PDF that you can fill in about um, shoring up your energetic boundaries. So to get it, all you have to do is go to boundaryboss.me forward slash empaths. And I know these guys will put them in the show notes. And if you want to get the book, go to boundarybossbook.com. That's boundarybossbook.com because I have a whole bunch of um, bonuses that once you buy the book, you can put your little receipt in. And I just love giving you boundary meditations and a whole bunch of other things. So I don't want you to miss that because you can buy the book anywhere, Amazon, you know, it's, it's sold everywhere at this point. Oh, you have such a good voice for meditations. Ah, oh, thanks. And don't forget boundaryquiz.com too. And yes, like you said, we'll put this in the show notes and on our Facebook page and on uh, my Instagram page as well. So you you guys can find it lots of different places, but we definitely hope you check out boundarybossbook.com because this is a really crucial, essential skill for everyone, but especially all of us empaths. So we thank you so much, not only for writing this book and sharing your life's work with us, but also for coming on the show with us today. And, and we hope you come back to talk boundaries with us. Anytime. Thank you, Samantha. Thank you, Denise. I really appreciate thank you. it. Had fun. Very, very much. It was, you're wonderful. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Please remember, as always, to show up, do great work, and share your light. Take care.